I'm Janet Roper, and you're listening to the Reawaken Right Relationship Podcast. Welcome to this place where we have conversations about creating, nurturing, and sustaining right relationship with all sentient beings. Thank you for listening to this podcast and a hearty dose of gratitude to those who have supported this podcast by making a financial contribution. I delight in providing this on-the-house offering to you, and it is made possible for me to continue to do so thanks to the voluntary support from listeners such as yourself. To become a sustaining member or to make a one-time contribution, you will find the link in the episode notes. Thank you so much for your support. give everyone a heads up about this episode. The term right relationship can immediately bring to mind warm fuzzies and all is well with the world, but that's not the case. Right relationship is about stepping out of your comfort zone, finding more courage than you thought you ever possessed, and possibly going against the norms of family, friends, and the prevalent culture. On this episode, we are raising a sensitive and controversial subject. There can be a hesitancy to bring this topic up because of the strong emotions, opinions, and moral convictions attached to it. The reason behind this episode is so a door to conversation can be opened, and we can take advantage of opportunities for both listening and learning and stepping into, beginning to step into right relationship around this topic. We need to be willing to become aware of our own triggers and sensitivities around this uncomfortable topic, because not everything is what it seems to be. Guest Nicholas Haney joins us in talking about the ethics of animistic hunting. Nick has worn a lot of hats over the years. In addition to being a writer and an author, he is also a blacksmith, a hunter, and a student of anthropology. He has been a hunter for almost 15 years and has six novels published to date. Well, are you good to go? I am ready when you are. I don't have any of my notes or anything with me, so but you're leading this conversation anyway. So I hope you have the notes. Oh, that's that's just scary. <laughs> I have the notes, but <laughs> all right. Nick, thanks so much for joining us today on today's podcast. Uh, we are going to be talking about a rather sensitive subject, which is hunting, the um, excuse me, animistic ethics of hunting. And you are a hunter, and I'd like to share with the listening audience how we got around on this topic to begin with. You want to delve into that? I am happy to, absolutely. All right, so I I think the idea for this started, you had shared an article on Facebook concerning concerning trapping, and a a hiker's pet had gotten caught in a trap, correct? Correct. Trying to remember this all off the top of my head. And I weighed in on that conversation on some of the regulations and that kind of thing. I I disagree, disagree, wrong word. Here we go. I think it's unfortunate that that pet got trapped. And I definitely think that was an illegal trap in that case for context reasons. But I weighed in on a lot of the the conservation aspect of that. that Hunting and trapping is often pretty strictly regulated. So the, the fact that that happened is actually really unfortunate. That's true. And that conversation just started us down the rabbit hole, because I will be honest and say that particularly living here in Montana, you know, there's a lot of trapping that goes on. And every time I see every time that there's a petition to, you know, stop the trapping, I'm signing it. And if I could sign it 50 times, I would. But when you and I and others open the door for conversation, on that post, I learned a lot of things that I had not even thought about. And I think it's really important that we discuss what is going on and ways that we can talk about it and have open conversation about this so that everyone can learn from each other so that we're not at the two ends of the spectrum, so to speak, but so we can meet in the middle. Um, And one of the things that you said in that conversation, and Nick, I got to say this, every time I talk to you, you always say one thing that just like, it sticks with me and it (laughs) it changes the way I think and the directions I go. And what you said um, that time was, 
oh, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. And quite frankly, I was thinking, what the hell? What baby? What bathwater? We're talking about trapping. <laughs> but when you brought in the aspects about cons- um, conservation, that were aspects that I hadn't even thought about. So let's um, dive into that. How does a hunter help with conservation? Well, in, in a lot of ways. I mean, like we've spoke about before, one of the, the big funding avenues for here in Michigan, where I am, is hunting and trapping licenses. Like a lot of the reason our state parks are maintained for hikers and, you know, everybody for enjoy actually comes from hunting and trapping licenses. That, that's a big part of our conservation budget. And also for conservation, ecology, and animism in general, that, that's the big picture of hunting because a lot of that money and, and a lot of my actual practice on the ground is maintaining those environments, not only for the animals and those that dwell there, but also for future generations what's hunting got to do with the future generations so can you go more into that more into specifics because i think you've got a couple of stories to share about how you've um, talked to the dnr brought things to their attention absolutely and i I can go more specific but I'll, i'll start with the big picture not only on the funding thing but a lot of a lot of west wetland restoration, a lot of maintenance, a lot of that is done by hunters or conservation groups or sportsmen's groups. For for specific examples, I myself have reported everything from illegal trash dumping, which is very common in our state park, as well as um, illegal camping, and and that was a, a complicated situation, and illegal burials as well. So they're Part of that upkeep and and, uh, just keeping our rivers and our lakes clean, a lot of that comes down to conservation and a lot of hunters and fishers are also very active in that realm of of maintaining maintaining the land and our water. And I would think that (laughs) I think so Um, brings up another question or another comment is that. And being so aware of the land that you have to notice the differences that are going on. If there's something that if you're hunting the same land, like family property or land that you've hunted on for years. And isn't that the most common thing that the hunters do? They have specific land that they hunt on. Or am I off ball on that? Yeah, you're, you're not off the wall, but we can definitely be a mobile group. I mean, that's that's kind of part part of the territory. But like me, myself, I have both um, 12 acres that I hunt in this private land, which is family land. And I've got a, a deep spiritual connection to that land as well. But also five minutes down the road is the largest state park in the low, Michigan Lower Peninsula, which is Waterloo State Park. And that is 20,000 acres, if I remember off the top of my head. So that's also part of, I guess, my quote unquote stomping ground. <laughs> and that's... Uh, Go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was just giggling. And and the the big picture of that is um, one of the most devastating things for for wildlife species, for plant and animal species, is, is habitat loss. So every year, I mean, speaking to specifics, every year I put $70 in hunting and fishing tags and another $11 in, um, in my in my actual state park usage, they're called recreation passports here. So that's $80 every year that I'm putting towards state property conservation efforts. And that's regardless of, you know, quote unquote, how successful I am as a hunter. Like that money goes into our conservation budgets, regardless of whether I'm bringing meat home or not. (laughs) Got it. Uh, And I was giggling because you said, um, what was it? Stomping ground of 20,000 acres. I'm going, whoa, that's a big stomping ground. That's a, that's a lot <laughs> yeah, of like, area to know. I like to hike. And, I like to hike as well. And I still haven't covered all that territory. I probably won't in my lifetime for scale. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's quite a lot. So what, what I understand you saying, Nick, is that um, because you're familiar with that, you're familiar with the habits of the animals. And if something goes off, you can report that to the DNR. Uh, how about chronic, what is it called? Chronic waste? Chronic waste disease? Chronic, 
chronic wasting disease. This is what popped up in my mind. All right. So this year, as opposed to any year previously, I've hunted the, the county I'm in, Jackson County, has now part of a chronic wasting management zone. And what chronic wasting is, is a, a disease that primarily affects members of the deer family. And it's, it's always terminal and it, it's kind of brutal once they have it. it. It's kind of not pretty. So part of the new level of regulations that we had this year was actually keeping an eye out for sick animals. And honestly, that's something I do anyway. Mm-hmm. But crop is one of those one of those obvious things. And in the big conservation picture, part of it is is overpopulation of deer, bad fe- bad feeding and baiting habits, but also a lack of natural predators. Like that is a big conservation issue that has made this disease spread so rapidly and it's it's absolutely devastating in a lot of areas i'm glad that there are folks like you who are out there and who are watching for things like that and can report it because i i just can't imagine anything more horrid than an animal having a disease like that and truly it's like burning up from the inside is that correct oh it's its long name is epizootic hemorrhaging fail hemorrhaging disease something like that so it's it's not even burning up it's and i guess i'm gonna put the content warning out there it's basically kind of bleeding out from the inside it's a really bad way to die it's very um inhumane i guess and it's really become a real problem here yeah yeah so it is um, very humane of hunters to watch out for that. Now, how is it determined if an animal has that disease? All right. So um, chronic, chronic wasting is, uh, it's either viral or bacterial. I can't remember one that, which one it is exactly, but it, it's, it's a disease of the brain. So something that happened here that, that popped up was um, wildlife check offices where Again, contact warning, but you bring the, the head of an animal you take and you, you put it in a bag and put it in a box and the DNR takes it out to university testing or, or state labs and that kind of thing. And that goes into state databases on where this disease is found if they come back positive kind of thing. So I was actually just down the road from me, there's a wildlife check office and that, uh, that drop off popped up this year. And that's something that's never been there before and complete with instructions and kind of their notification information if, if things come back positive because we're in that chronic wasting management zone now. So when it comes, when the results come back positive, the hunters are told of that so that they can keep an eye open for it. Is that correct? I, I will say, honestly, I don't know. I haven't had that experience, but it does go into a public database which we can then have access to and they will, they'll calculate it. I think sometime this year about how many specimens in a given area came back positive. And that will determine next year who's in a chronic wasting management zone and who's not. So I don't mean to be, you know, just kind of blowing this off, but somebody someplace is watching out for this and is able to take care of this. We, I, we just don't know who and where that kind of stuff. Is that true? Um, I I think I understand your question, but yes, hunters are watching for this, conservation, hikers, that kind of thing, but also here in the DNR as well, like the rangers are on this, and and I'm sure conservation scientists, ecologists, that kind of thing, because I think some of the testing happens at public universities as well, and somebody's crunching all this data to make these maps we get each year, but I couldn't tell you their names off the top of my head. I'd have to dig deeper into that. Okay. That, that's excellent. That answered my question. So Nick, this show is all about relationship. And um, isn't it kind of an oxymoron to talk about being in relationship and then go hunt animals? From my opinion, I don't think so. And speaking broadly on that, speaking broadly to hunting as, as a deep relationship to, to, um, to land and to a space, like uh to i primarily hunt white-tailed deer which which are our big prey animal here but to get to a point where i even know to say where i'm going to put up my stand for a year 
that's a multi-year process where I learn real, real intimate details about white-tailed deer. Like I've got what I'd consider a pretty good relationship with white-tailed deer because I'm going to learn their movement habits, their breeding habits, their sleeping habits. And that takes a long time and a deep kind of relationship with both the land and the animal, not only habitats, but behaviors and, uh, and that kind of thing before I even know where's a good place to hunt or not. Like it took me, I've been doing this, let's see, for 15 years, give or take. And it took me probably the first three years of that to, to figure out where a good place to put a blind was of tracking and learning habits and, and learning behavior. My interpretation of what you're saying is that you have a much more intimate relationship with the land and the animals because you're a hunter than the average Joe Blow does. Absolutely. Or at least I would ma make that argument because it, it took me not only a lot of just on the ground field work, a lot of tracking during the season and without like a lot of just tracking and learning habits, you know, where they eat, where, where they go to drink, that kind of thing. But also just like the seasonal variations of the land too. Like they move around seasonally. So where white-tailed deer are in the winter isn't the same place they're going to be in the summer. It's not going to be the same place they're at during the breeding season it's called the rut usually. And you are so, an animist. And does that play into this, you having that deep relationship or is it that any hunter will have that deep relationship? I guess the question is, does being an animus play more into how you are doing your hunting? Big capital letter, yes, because some, something I have been prone to say before is part of the reason I am an animist is because I was a hunter first. That's interesting. So, uh, Can you tell us yeah. more about that? Let's get into that then. So l learning hunting skills like tracking, archery, you know, ecology, big E ecology and big C conservation, learning about all those things and learning about whitetail and the animals that are around me. A lot of that fed back into my understanding of animism, of being in relationship with the land and the animals around me and actually kind of fed back into both my sense of ecology because that's the kind of we're all related in the same kind of ecosystem thing, but also conservation B because the animals aren't healthy, frankly, if the environment isn't like if, like if we have bad forests or, or bad rivers, everybody suffers from that. Like um, speaking here to Michigan, we're, we're having a lot of waterway issues with, with uh, PFAS chemicals and PFAS contamination. And with that up North, there's a place uh, near uh, Skoda, where deer hunting, white-tailed deer hunting has been banned because these animals are now infected with these PFAS chemicals and they're not safe to eat. Like the, I think there's a five, five square mile management zone that's the, the white-tailed deer are no longer safe to eat because of PFAS con contamination and waterway contamination. So there's a, a very real feedback there and a very real relationship between what we're doing as humans and the health of our habitats and the animals that, that come from that as well. And do you think that what takes us farther away from our food source, and I know that there's going to be people climbing up the walls as we start talking about hunting as food source. Do you think that it has to do with our lifestyle and living more you know, in urban areas? I think urbanization is definitely part of it. It's kind of that uh, th there is a disconnect, I think, in our, our relationship to to our food sources. I'm, I'm definitely an advocate of getting a little closer to that. Now, I'm not going to say everybody needs to go out and be a hunter or that kind of thing. You know, I'm not that kind of person. But I do think it's important to understand how our food systems impact everything because not only on a small scale on, you know, farm to table, that kind of thing, but also on a big scale, like one of the biggest con carbon contributors to climate change is our food system right now and how we manage food. And I think from a hunting perspective, like I'm a happy little omnivore. I know not everybody's gonna, gonna live that lifestyle. And, and I do my best to, to, 
eat a more plant-rich diet as opposed to a more meat-rich diet. And that's a whole nother can of worms we're not going to touch right now. But part of hunting is my relationship with my food system and with food because it's very, very intimate and, and, and very primal, the, the fact that after getting to know, you know, white-tailed deer in a way where I guess love is the best word. I'm really fond of white-tailed deer as a species. They're an amazing animal. They're beautiful and graceful and wonderful. But getting to the point where you're going to make that decision, and when you do, it's kind of imperative to me that that w- when that kill happens, that I've done it cleanly, humanely, and pain- painlessly and possible, as possible. And then the animism kicks in, and then, then, then the real work kind of begins. I hear what you're saying, and gosh, my mind is just going in so many directions. Okay, first direction. Opening that can of worms, I'd love to have you come back on the podcast if you're willing to do that, and let's open up that can of worms about um, eating meat and our food source. Absolutely. I'm our, a big, ad- <laughs> a big our, advocate for beating climate change, and that's one of the big ones. All right. All right, folks, so stay tuned for part two at some point in the future when Nick will be back on. Um, the other way that my mind is going is that you're talking about this intimate relationship with the land, with the animals, and as an animist, how you're, you're watching them and everything. And do you think that the animal, how, how can I word this? Do you think that the animal plays a part in saying, yes, it's okay to kill me? Yes, I'm okay in um, giving my life for your food? Or is that just too out on the Janet Woo Woo branch? That is absolutely not out on the Janet Woo Woo branch. Ooh, do I have stories here? Please, let's go for the stories. <laughs> where to begin? Where, where to begin? Animistically and speaking from folklore, like there is so much indigenous and pre-Christian European folklore on basically hunting success or loss. And so much of that is, is active in the spirit of the animals themselves, not necessarily the spirit of the hunter. So... Speaking to that animistically, I consider myself intimately tied into the cycles of life and death, right? Like, that's the big way to put it. And there is, I'm trying to frame this for a general audience without going (laughs) really down the rabbit hole, but there is a concept in Finnish folklore from, from Finland, which is generally a big hunting culture or was a big hunting culture and a big animistic culture as well. Whereas your relationship with the spirit of the animal, even not only on the individual aspect, but on the big grand stage, like your relationship with this whole species and your, your, your success or failure in the hunt was determined by your relationship with that species. The the, the best way I can frame this for my, modern audiences is the studio ghibli film princess mononoke right the spirit of the spirit of the forest takes life and gives life away right right Mm -hmm. and so animistically and the the word is shaman shamanically i don't like using that perfectly but i do have a working relationship with the with not only the spirits of the forest but also with the spirit of the white tail at least in my local region and I know there's a whole lot of complexity I'm skipping over there, but basically the, I guess we'll go into the story part of it. I had an adversarial relationship with the spirit of the white tail for years. Like it was the, the, the pretty typical predator prey thing, right? Like I chase you, sometimes you win, sometimes I win. But this, this year and the year previous, I've really reframed that and we've really kind of come into a different understanding and it's um, it's curious. A, white, a little white-tailed doe actually works as um, an animistic guide in this sense for me. And it's actually one I took. It kind of runs interference for me. <laughs> uh, okay, wait, but, wait. Let's clarify that for a moment. When you say um, that uh, she um, acts as a guide for you, are you talking she's in the physical or she's in the non-physical? Um, she was in the physical. Okay. I still have her, her hide in my garage. Okay. But she's passed on now and that is my fault would you say it's your fault or that um this was an agreement that the two of you had 
so that she could be your guide. It's definitely a a rabbit hole to go down to. Yes, and kind of yes. Okay. <laughs> I like that kind of yes. I get that. <laughs> yes, it's my fault. But yes, she wasn't going anywhere. And now kind of works with me in the post-hunt phase. <laughs> when I think of hunting, I think of the canned hunting and the trapping by those hunters that are not compassionate or who are just there for the game, not for the um, ancestry, not for the relationship or not for relationship to the animals and to the land, the conservation um, and not for the food, but just there to, you know, I'm the human so I can shoot you. So there you are, I can trap you and there you go kind of thing. But when you share that story of her and the relationship that you two had and have for me anyway, that puts a, a totally different perspective and a totally different life on how to approach the hunting conversation. Yeah, absolutely. The The animism for me is not only like deeply intertwined with the hunting, but it's also a whole nother layer. And speaking widely, I don't see the eye to eye with all hunters, but it's the kind of thing that humans are complicated and nuanced. And I will say that there are some really crappy people out there that are hunting and there's some really decent folk too doing some good work as well so i i think it's as you said it's dangerous to throw the baby out with the bath water <laughs> we're gonna toss that back and forth between us i can just see that <laughs> but not the baby we're not tossing the baby that's right not okay. right right the phrase <laughs> let's be clear on that we're tossing the phrase back and forth <laughs> We are not tossing a baby. Yes. No <laughs> babies were harmed in this podcast. <laughs> uh, one of the things that has really amazed me, actually it struck me almost speechless as I've been researching for this, is that um, there seems to be a lot of compassion among hunters. And that just, it totally shocked me. I was listening to a podcast yesterday. It was just such an opening experience for me that one of the hunters on there was talking about, I think it was a grizzly that he was hunting and um, he missed and he tracked that grizzly for days. And he was talking about how horrible he felt about it because he had missed. It was not, what do you call it? A clean shot and how horrible he felt. And he was thinking of, you know, this animal is hurting and I need to find this animal so that I can put him out of his misery. And I guess that people could say, well, you know, if you weren't hunting to begin with, the animal wouldn't have been in misery. But I think that's a very um, superficial, perhaps, way of looking at hunting. And to look at that deep compassion and that deep relationship that you have to have with another um, sentient being to realize that you have done something, I don't know if wrong is the correct word, but you've done something that you've not intended and you want to make amends, so to speak, and do what you can to help. Yeah, and, and I can speak directly to that because, you know, there, there's no such thing as a as a a perfect, you know, there's no free lunch, there's no no perfect situation, and I've been in that situation where I've I've made the bad shot. I had one a couple of years ago where it was a lot higher than I would have liked it to be, and we tracked the the good sized whitetail doe across probably several miles of marshland like just and I felt awful I, I felt like a piece of crap because I know for a fact that they were in pain you know the doe was bleeding and I, I couldn't tell you for sure if it was a fatal shot so we followed across this marshy swampy land and I'm so grateful for the help I had that day that was fantastic but just little spots of of blood of trails across this marshland across this miserable terrain and i just feel like you know feel guilty to this day that we never found that doe but thankfully i don't think she suffered very long because we got to the point where we lost the trail mm -hmm. and we heard the coyote about a hundred yards from us probably a good half dozen coyotes or so so somebody found that blood trail that we didn't and I feel super guilty about it to this day. And that's something I can speak wider to, to the animism part. A lot of hunting rituals that I've read about hunting folklore, that kind of thing. A lot of it comes down to dealing with that guilt because ultimately it's an animal 
at least in my opinion, you learn to love, like you, you become part of their, their habitat and their, their life and their ecosystem. And then you make that decision of whether or not to take that shot. Like, um, if I'm not monopolizing too much time, I got a story here that I think, <laughs> you go- all right. So there was a couple of years ago, there was a little, little buck that ca- would come out every morning and every evening. And he knew I was there. Like he'd lock eyes with me, that kind of thing. And then walk right up under my tree stand, you know, willy nilly, that kind of thing. Like, yeah, look how awesome I am. I am under your stand. And, and he was young. He couldn't have been more than a year. Not, not, not the kind of deer I would ever really take a shot at. He was, he was small. <laughs> <laughs> and, and not even from a trophy's point. He was young. He was small. I'm like, all right, whatever. And I ended up naming him Courage. Because I'm like, you got, you got, you know, brass buns, boy. You're walking right up here under me and you know, I'm here. And so, so he came out all that season. He was always there. Like I I could count on it and just tickled my wife to death. I'd come home. Yeah. Courage was out again, making noise, being a butt. Like those were my hunting stories that season where, yeah, courage came out and ran all around all around my blind, like making way more noise than he should have scaring people off. Yeah. Good for him. <laughs> so he had a name too. You gave yes, him a name. I've, I've, named, I've named more than one. Mm-hmm. And it, at the end of the year, you know, it was a bad year, never bagged anything, that kind of thing. The end of the year, I, I came home with those stories, but I came home also with the understanding that next year, if courage was back out there, he was going to be a good size young buck in his second year that I would have to possibly make the decision of whether or not to take a shot on a deer I'd named and gotten to know pretty, pretty, pretty well, I would say. And thankfully I I can say this honestly here. Thankfully I never saw him again. Now that makes me sometimes, but he never came back out. So I never had to make that decision, but that's the kind of things that, that the animism comes in. It's like, I can watch, you know, spotties, fawns grow up one year, knowing mm-hmm. I might have to make that decision next year. That's hard. <laughs> I can only imagine that for sure, because you've, you've developed a relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Nick, whenever you're hunting, do you feel that there's like an ancestral connection um, to the hunting. Absolutely. I, can you tell us more <laughs> about that? Yeah. All right. So, so, so one thing in the hunting community, there, there's always this weird tension about how you hunt. So like uh-huh. bow hunters give gun hunters a lot of crap and usually it's corridoral. Like it's like the ha 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 buddy thing, but I am a traditional bow hunter, which means I don't use a compound bow. I don't use a lot of tech, that kind of thing. I go out with basically a stick with a string on it. Okay. And, I, and that is one of the oldest forms of bow hunting. And that directly connects me with, you know, hunter gatherers and my ancestors that once that was all they had before farms, before cities. It was, you know, my ancestors, a stick with a string on it and, and some sharpened stone points, right? Right. And there's, there's that deep ancestral connection there for me where I at least understand them at that level. I, I understand, you know, why there were so many animistic hunting rights, why there were so many connections to the spirits of prey animals to the connections to the forest or the lands you were hunting it gets me about as close as i'm ever going to get in modern times to that kind of understanding of the world and it's really shaped that relationship with land with ancestors with the white-tailed deer that's really kind of shaped a lot of my animism so would it be true to say that it connects you to the ancestors? So in a sense, when you're hunting, you're going back into the past, but it also brings the ancestors forward because into the, into the present time, because when you're hunting and you were with them, you are listening to them. You are bringing their, their ways of living forward into the way that you live. 
I think it's absolutely fair to say that. And it's it's not unusual for me to kind of invite my ancestors in before I go hunting. Because speaking honestly, I'm sure many of them were better hunters than I am. <laughs> and it's kind of calling that forward. Yeah, that's a that's a great way to frame it. Um, so do you ever get the sense that when you're in a stand and, and you've got, you know, that, that one-year-old that's below you, that you've got an ancestor tapping on your shoulder saying, no, nah, Nick, no, not this year. Let's just wait on that. <laughs> that is not an unusual experience whenever I'm in the woods going, hey, 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 listen, tap, 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 tap. I'm like, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and, and, you it, know, go ahead. No, go, go for it. Um, and maybe, you know, we should just both let the audience know that we're both animus and that we're both um, shamans and that we speak from those levels when we're talking about our ancestors. So it's not just, you know, cousin George that lives down the road and you're going to see cousin George in five minutes, but it's the ancestors of the past we also connect with. Yes, absolutely. And adding on to that, I, I come from a long line of hunters. Like that's kind of one of my few family traditions that have passed forward to me. But on top of that is also the animism and the conservation. I'm not just dealing with my ancestors, but the ancestors of the forest and the white-tailed deer too. Like yes. I've already mentioned on how the doe is one of my guides. Well, that, that, that spirit of the doe also kind of runs interference between me and the spirit of the forest. And that's what I was alluding to earlier. My current agreement with the spirit of the forest, of my family land anyway. Yeah, that's a rabbit hole. But the, the short version of that relationship is I help the spirit of the forest maintain the cycles of life and death. So often the animals that are sent my way are not what you would call trophy bucks. They're smaller you know, they're underfed. I had one this year, actually, that I ended up calling Limpy, who kept circling my blind. He had me made, though. But he had a very noticeable limp on the front left. I don't know mm -hmm. if he'd been hit by a car or, or shot previously. But he was not exactly what you'd call a, a prime specimen. So I, that's part of the agreement. And that's, that's part of the ecology as well. What you're saying is making perfect sense to me. I mean, I still need to sort it out kind of thing, because this conversation, quite frankly, is new to me. You are literally the first person I've had this kind of conversation with in my life. Um, so I thank you for that and for being willing to share your wisdom and, and your knowledge on this. Thank you very much. But it really has turned my thinking around. When I think of hunting, I immediately go to the canned hunting to um, Cecil, you know, to where the animals are raised with the purpose of being hunted down. And they're in like an enclosed place. And I personally, and granted, I'm new at this. I don't look, from what I'm learning, I don't look at that as hunting. That is just killing. And there's a difference. Yes, there, there is a difference. I mean, the, the podcast you mentioned earlier, which, you know, you should definitely share with your audience. But th there is a difference in my mind, the difference between wildlife and caged life. Like right. the, the, the difference would, between the relationship with, you know, 20,000 acres of state land versus going into a, a zoo with a rifle. You know, there's a big difference there. And like I said before, I don't see eye to eye with every hunter because, because to me, to me, at least, it is wrong to frame hunting as a game or a sport. Like, life and death is not a sport, right? Correct. To, to me, it's, it's a lot deeper than that. And only treating it as a sport, I think, is, is dishonest, is, is disin, disingenuous, not dishonest, is disingenuous. Because it it kind of takes the conservation, the ecology out of it, but it also takes the relationship out of it. It, it takes the, the respect for non-human life out of it. Ah, beautiful. Would you repeat what you just said, please? <laughs> oh, I'm going to butcher it this time. It's not going to be as good. 
<laughs> that it takes the respect that's... of non-human life out of it. Yes, it. I think framing it as a sport, as as a game, takes the respect for non-human life out of it. I I really do. I, I think framing it like a game of football is the wrong way to frame it. And you know, it seems like that is the picture that is put forth, at least from what I see. Um, that is the picture that is put forth is what hunting is. And that is um, the word that keeps coming to mind. That's a dishonest representation of actual compassionate hunting that has to do with conservation and has to do with a food source, which those seem to be the two top priorities of making a compassionate, ethical, I'm trying to say, um, hunter. Yes, yes. And um... That that's that broad brush thing, but part of it is is speaking deeply is part of the capitalism behind it too. Like like there is a certain image that is portrayed, and right. I do want to say that cliche as it sounds, not all hunters. I know some really compassionate folks, and I know some real jackasses too. Mm-hmm. That's that nuance that comes with being human. But it is that correct that it's like a billion dollar industry? multi-billion dollar industry it's holy buckets good size yeah and that's kind of thing in 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 our system where that that translates to real power like um i I can speak directly towards uh the, the the gray wolf issue here in michigan now this is one of those things where i am even as a hunter i am against hunting gray wolves at this time in Michigan mm-hmm. because like I spoke previously, part of like our problems with chronic wasting are white tailed deer overpopulation. And that comes directly from a lack of predators. And it's been a real controversy here. And there have been some big, big hunter organizations, even some big conservation organizations behind the push to hunt gray wolves. And I just really think it's irresponsible. So it's it's one of those things as a hunter where I'm going to defend my rights to hunt, but I'm also going to be staunchly against hunting of certain species because of the ecological context. Like, they, we lack big predators right now. And the reason for that is we, we basically extinct the gray wolf in this state for decades. And it's, it's at the point where it's finally recovering. And we we need to keep that recovery going because ultimately it's going to be the health of our, our state and our habitats. And I, I have truth bumps running through my whole body as you are talking about this. Um, most people call them goosebumps. I call them truth bumps. I just hear in your voice, the conviction and the um, honesty in wanting to do what is right by the animals, by the land as a hunter. Yeah. I, I think that's true, and I've got a I've got a pretty strong background in ecology and forestry too. And I think think focusing on on hunting as just the barbaric act of killing really misses the ecology, really misses the big picture. Whereas I can be like, oh well, I will hunt white-tailed deer, but I'm against hunting gray wolves at this time right. because there's a there's a balance there that we are strongly out of and have been right. for a while. And we're losing habitat and biodiversity as a result. I hear exactly what you're saying. Um, The other thing about the canned hunting or the fenced hunting, however you want to refer to it, is that there is no oversight. It's not managed by the DNR. So diseases can run among those animals, correct? Um, I can see that as the case. I'm not as familiar with with the regulations of enclosed hunting here, but... Mm -hmm. With like chronic wasting, one of the big factors is overpopulation. Is too many animals in too in too small of space. That's kind of how it's spread. It's spread by feces and urine and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So when it's cliche, but the, when there's too many white-tailed deer eating where they poop, is when it spreads. Got it. And and it it goes across the deer family as well. So I think elk and moose and wapiti can get it as well. So with the way you've been talking, 
hunting is actually part of your spiritual practice, which again, to me, that sounds like an oxymoron, but you are a living example of how hunting can be part of a spiritual practice. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's actually a, a pretty big part. I know <laughs> for listener context, I know I've shared that kind of stuff with you before. It's uh, there, There's a lot of rituals, a lot of seasonal ceremonies that go into that for me. And a lot of personal stories and ancestral folklore. <laughs> there's a lot of right. components to that. So it's not just getting up at five o'clock in the morning, getting your coffee and, and telling your wife, see you later, honey. I'm out to hunt. I'll be back tonight. Yeah, yeah, usually so she's more than that. It's well, so well, much more than that. <laughs> yeah. I, like I could say, I can only imagine. And um, let's, if, do you have a few more minutes, Nick? I do. I'm kind of watching batteries here, but I definitely have a few more right now. Because what I'd like to do is really go into the cycles of life and death and talk more about honoring the dead. I'd be absolutely happy to talk about that. I was kind of thinking about it anyway. Okay. But let's let's jump into that one about that. And there, there's something I want to go with that. All right. So like I've already mentioned, kind of the, the, the big picture is hunting is that the actual kill is a really small part of it. But animistically, once the animal is down, once the deed is done, if you want to frame it that way, for me, that, that's really when the real work begins. Because, like I've already said, one of my guides is an animal I've hunted. You know, I still have her skin, and my wife and I, we ate her. So she becomes the death that sustained us. But on that no, once an animal is actually down, I have rituals and ceremonies I've built up with that are basically helping that animal pass on to its ancestors or the spirits of the forest or, you know, whatever the keeper happens to be, the guardian of that animal happens to be and, and ceremonies that help that move back into the cycle of, of life and death so that the ecology and the ecosystem stays healthy. And part of that is not only which are basically funeral rites for the dead, you know, incense, that kind of thing, sometimes silent prayers, that kind of thing, but also disposing of the remains, disposing of the carcass, doing that in a way where it doesn't, you know, you don't dump the dead in a river because you're going to pollute the river and burial practices and that kind of thing. And actually, you know, since we've talked about it, kind of the death walking thing, part, part of my responsibility as a hunter is making sure the hunted return to their, their ancestors, basically, or, you know, the ecology in general, if you want to frame it in a broad way, in a way that, that maintains that cycle. Nick, for the um, listening audience, for some context, can you tell them, context i can't talk can you um, tell them what you mean by death walking um in in the shortest broadest sense it's me walking with the spirit of the dead animal and walking to them to quote unquote final destination you know you usually yeah. for me ex, ex, as an experience usually that's a spirit of a forest or an ecology or their ancestors and that's a a big thing in finnish folklore is that the 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 dead kind of guard the living. Yeah. Yeah. Or, I think that's a great way to put it. I like the way that you explained that. Living, kind of. Anything you would like to leave the listening audience, Nick? Um, <laughs> oh, you're looking for the grand conclusion statement. Um, just for this time I, around. <laughs> there might be others. <laughs> I leave with the impression that the hunters are a really nuanced group and we're not all jackasses. And life and death is complicated. <laughs> yes, yes. Be sure to tune in to next week's episode when our guest is Brandis Schnabel of Soulful Focus. Brandis is going to be talking about right relationship, particularly right relationship with an inanimate object, like with boundaries and like with organization. Brandis is also going to be talking about bullet journaling because she is 
She loves to bullet journal, what can I say? And she's also going to be discussing the difference between productivity and busyness. So I hope you'll tune in and hear Brenda Schnabel on next week's episode of Reawaken Right Relationship. Do you love what you're hearing on this podcast? I sure hope so. And if you are loving it, I ask that you show support by liking it and leaving a comment or review on whatever platform you are listening to this on. You can also show your support by sharing it with your friends and family. And I so appreciate your help. Thank you. I think you'll enjoy the podcast, Everyday Animism, that I co-host with two exceptional women, Kelly Harrow of SoulfulIntentArts.com and Brandis Schnabel of SoulfulFocus.com. In this podcast, we explore all things animism, particularly how animism impacts everyday life. You can find it here at Anchor or on your favorite podcast platform. The 20 plus years that I have spent writing, speaking, podcasting, and sharing what I know with you have all been to support your life and relationship with the animals and the other nature beings you love so dearly. I share what I know and intuit freely, a gift from my heart and spirit to you and the sentient beings of the world. It's a body of work grounded in love and infinite respect for all life, because we all do better when all creatures do better. If you find my work helpful, if an article or a podcast has inspired or informed you or expanded possibilities in your world, a donation would be deeply appreciated as a way to show your support. You can make a payment of any amount at paypal.me backslash Janet Roper, or simply go to my website, www.janetroper.com, and at the top you will see a tab that says Make a Contribution, and you can make your contribution there. I thank you very much. Your contribution makes my work sustainable. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you have enjoyed hearing this, remember to subscribe to the podcast on Anchor or iTunes. And if you would like to follow more of my work, please visit www.janetroper.com.